Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week in Korea. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence some new advancements in that technology and the effects that might have on the labor force. But first, we're going to be talking about the economy of Qatar. Not coincidentally, that is the host of the ongoing World Cup. Adam, have you been watching any soccer? I have, yes. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm one of those occasional soccer watchers. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm... I think it's basically a kind of European cultural thing. You can't, you can't really not. So, um, yeah, I have. Yeah, I watch with my six-year-old son. He knows a lot more than I do already as a sort of European. But in any case, yes, we will turn to the economy of the host country, Qatar. Our data point is two. That is Qatar's ranking in terms of the world's natural gas exporters. It's the richest country per capita in the world. So where does it get all its money? Oil and gas, the cornerstones of Qatar's economy. Being oil, natural gas, and from sectors adjacent to those, such as petrochemicals and fertilizers. Gas accounts for about 70% of Qatar's government revenue, 60% of its gross domestic product, 85% of its export earnings. It's at the center of its economy, clearly. Although this week, Qatar is at the center of the global conversation because of the World Cup. But still, we wanted to kind of zoom out a bit and look at its broader economic situation while all eyes are on it. So, Adam. Yeah, I just read out all those statistics about Qatar and gas. It got me wondering, what did the Qatari economy look like before the country discovered its gas deposits? And that also got me wondering, when it found gas, how did it even sort of make the transition to being this kind of gas power? Are, are there like consultants out there that come in and sweep in when you find gas to assist, you know, in the acquisition of all the expertise you need on this kind of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, to speak historically of the Qatari economy is, is a little question begging. I mean, after all, what we're talking about is an emirate, which is 160 kilometers long and, you know, 90 kilometers across at its widest point. It's basically a peninsula that extends out, you know, from Saudi Arabia into the Persian Gulf. And um, it's been ruled by the Altani family since 1872 and was originally under a British protectorate in, in 1900. Um, you know, had a population of 27,000. That's 1% of its current population, of which a substantial fraction were African slaves, um, because this is classic slaving territory. Um, it, it was a, an economy that lived off, you know, insofar as one can speak of an economy, it, it lived off fishing and pearl diving. And by the 1920s, it was in dire straits because pearls were out of fashion and were being replaced by artificial <laughs> pearls. And so really, you know, they were in serious trouble. 
Um, your sh short answer is obviously a community like that is not well equipped to discover, you know, major fossil fuel reserves, and and they didn't. Um, mm. As as it was was true across the across the region. Of course, the locals were aware of the fact that there were, you know black oily deposits visible in many places and strange emissions of gas but but had no way really of conceiving of those like the west of the world as well as you know major natural resources and and the people who do are of course the imperial powers and the imperial powers backed up by the what will become the major oil companies of the world and so from the 20s onwards the entire region is a field basically for um, competition between um, the, the the major oil companies of the world, and it's not gas, but oil that's first found in in Qatar in, in 1939, and it's a you know as you would expect, it's a combination of you know British, Imperial, New Zealanders, American oil geologists who are rivaling each other to find oil in in Saudi Arabia, famously of course, but also in Bahrain, and then they they see analogous geologies because. Oil science at the time is pretty rudimentary, they, but they see analogous geologies in Qatar and then begin exploring that. And so it's in 1939 that they, they first strike oil. Um, it's worth saying, and it's important to say, I think, that, that you can't do this kind of imperial surveying without local expertise. There are always um, locals that need to take you to the obvious geological features because you don't know what you don't know. And there are no maps of these places until you make the map. And so how do you start making the map? And it, in, in Qatar's case, it was Sheikh Mansour, who was a, a local savant, if you like, uh, uh, in geology, who attached himself to the Western geological teams. And through to his, um, blind, he became blind in the 1940s due to trachoma. Um, but he was a constant uh, accompaniment, a guide uh, to all of the oil geology teams that that struck um, oil in in Qatar throughout the 1930s and the 1940s. So it's this blend of, as it were, local guiding expertise and local knowledge with outside expertise. Um, so it's a Anglo-Persian um, Iraq syndicate group that um, finds the oil initially. And then finally begins extracting it in 1949. It was Shell that found offshore oil in the 1950s. And then it was Shell also in 1971 that found the giant North Field, the giant, the world's largest offshore, the world's largest gas field. And that happened at the same time as a, as a palace coup within the Altani family. And so a new regime took charge. It didn't immediately develop gas um, because oil was the big thing. So Qatar was basically a minor oil producer and doing very well, nice, doing very nicely doing that during the 1970s. But the money was frittered away. And in the 1980s, the Saudis decide to crash the oil price. So it's really from 1989 onwards that gas begins to be developed as a unique Qatari asset. And and really, after another palace coup in 1995, these are all bloodless. It basically huh. involves the senior figure of the family being in Switzerland or, you know, falcon hunting in Saudi Arabia. And then at home, everything gets rearranged. In 1995, really, is when the big uh, LPG, crucially orientated Qatari development kicks off in earnest. So it's really between the 80s and the 90s that Qatar becomes what we know it as today, namely a gas superpower. And that's also when you see Qatari GDP surging from that moment onwards. Got it. You make it seem like, yeah, for a long time, the Western geologists and oil companies were the real sovereign actors and the locals were just assisting them. Maybe, yeah, we should return maybe to that oil economy history at some point. But Qatar also has one of the world's highest rates of migrant labor these days. As you mentioned, it's a small country. 
not that many citizens relative to the workers who come from abroad. So what sort of economic privileges do Qatari citizens enjoy these days relative to their migrant laborers? Yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot of absolutely uh, justifiably in the context of World Cup coverage about migrant workers um, in, in Qatar and that and the sometimes really appalling conditions under which they work. The Qatari regime has made efforts to improve those under the scrutiny of outside observers, but it still remains an incredibly unequal system. Uh, and one which makes no bones about it. And and Qatari's uh, uh, citizens are some of the luckiest people alive. I mean, they are born into a system which guarantees tax-free income, high-paying government jobs, free healthcare, free higher education, financial support for newlyweds, housing support, uh, free utility bills or, or massive subsidies for them. There is an entire website designed for nothing other than sluicing suitably qualified Qataris into jobs in the private and public sector. There is a Qatarization program, which makes no bones about the fact that the aim of the game is precisely, and for good reason, to overcome, as it were, the the structural historical legacy of a situation in which um, the natural resources of Qatar are largely developed by 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 foreign uh, labour and by foreign companies, and up until the 1970s, at least, also for the benefit, of course, of foreign investors. And so that is indeed the the system. Um, a hugely proactive system. It affects maybe 10% of the populations, right? So the citizens mm. of Qatar amount to about 300,000 people out of an overall population. The figures are extraordinarily variable of about somewhere between 2.5 and 2.9 million inhabitants of Qatar. So one-tenth are Qatari citizens. And this means that there is a really a sort of four-tiered labor system um, in Qatar, um, there is, as it were, the ruling family, the, the true elite of Qatari society. Um, then there are regular Qatari citizens who are marked by, above all, by clothing, right, by by the wearing of, of the gown and headgear that marks ordinary Qataris off from the foreign workforce who generally do not adopt that kind of clothing. Then you have the elite Western workers uh, overwhelmingly Western, recruited from all over the world, but uh, who who themselves enjoy an extraordinary range of privileges, not quite at the same level and with the same citizenship rights as Qataris, but also very low tax regime, subsidized housing, subsidized education. And then at the bottom of the pile, the overwhelming majority of people living in Qatar and servicing its economy are, of course, migrant workers, uh, and above all from within the Indian Ocean. Um, and, and it's worth saying, to avoid the use of sloppy language, that there is actual slavery too in the Gulf regions, in, in say, Saudi Arabia. That, that you could say there's a fifth tier of workers who are literally bought and sold various types of indentured labor along, in many cases, the old routes of uh, black slavery, um, uh, involving in Saudi Arabia, according to the estimates of some charities, fifty to 60,000 people. Um, in Qatar, it's not thought there's more than about 4,000 people who are in that status. So foreign labor is not slave labor in that sense. And, and given the fact that there is actual slavery, it's, I think, important to make that distinction. Uh, but they obviously live in in, in hugely discriminated uh, circumstances in, in foreign labor camps. And these are workers, it's important to say, above all, from, from South Asia. So across the Indian Ocean, which is a short hop, if you're in, in Qatar, uh, it's pa- Pakistanis, Indians, Nepalis um, who come to the Gulf um, for, for work. Yeah, given the fact that 90%, as you said, 90% of the population is comprised of foreigners, it got me wondering whether, yeah, these migrant laborers are also performing core functions of the state, you know, whether security or 
administration or bureaucracy, some of these sort of functions that we think of as usually performed by citizens. Is this a kind of unique experiment in Qatar when it comes to those sort of core functions of government being performed by foreigners? And, and yeah, does that make the country less stable in some way? It's true across the Gulf. And, and it's worth saying that the tentacles of that kind of pattern of the employment of foreign expertise by Gulf states go very deep, very wide, and they extend to folks like myself. So I've taught at NYU Abu Dhabi, which is a fully funded private university, cosmopolitan uh, funded by the, the by the Emirates, um, I've attended events, say, of Davos, the WEF, which are also uh, on the Emirates dime, and I actually did uh, a couple of sessions of consulting for the Qatari Delivery Authority for the World Cup, um, which were looking for geopolitical advice in the context of 2020. Um, and you're dealing there with you know extremely well briefed Qatari principals, and then a staff of civil servants who have recruited from all over the world. Um, and that pattern is completely normal in these states. You know, it's easy to think of it as kind of mercenary in some sense. Um, and, and that's not a, I think, false analogy. Um, and it creates, you know, a variety of different um, sort of conflicts in a sense, uh, but also advantages. Because one of the things that this means is that you don't get the buildup in many of the Gulf states of civil society in the form that we understand it, right? You don't get the uppity lawyers, the difficult uh, uh, journalists, um, that is contained by the fact that the vast majority of the people in those kind of positions don't have citizenship rights. So from the point of mm. view of the stability of the regime, it actually has an upside. You might say they're less loyal, but they're also more disposable. This is part of the mercenary model. And we should take the mercenary analogy seriously because it's really in the military that this is most pronounced. So it's estimated that about 85% of the soldiers in the Qatari military are uh, foreign nationals. Above all, again, don't be thinking Western mercenaries, though there are some Colombians there now, but it is above all Pakistanis, Sudanese um, that serve in the rank and file. And at the other end, then, you have a tradition of military advisors, so-called, going back to British imperial days, where you have the Qatari or other Gulf state officer corps who are trained at Sandhurst or West Point or you know naval academies in the United States, and then have very close relationships with Western advisors who are either still on the payroll and in the uniform of the US or the British military or furloughed out. And uh, that builds these incredibly close connections, which then, of course, pay off in the form of the giant American base in Qatar, uh, but also in arms contracts, because if you get your advice from the Americans, of course, you also tend to buy your weapons from them. Qatar is also one of the centers of Islamic finance. I, I was curious if you could yeah, explain what Islamic finance is and how exactly it works, what distinguishes it from yeah, the sort of financial system that we're accustomed to in the West. Well, Islamic finance in its modern form originates in the 1960s, came out of Egypt along with much of the revival of modern Islamic thinking, um, and has developed since into a fairly substantial branch of global finance. And what it is addressed to is how you square modern financial practice with two Quranic injunctions. One is against usury, and the other is against dealings on ambiguous or potentially deceptive bases. So Islamic law, in this sense, codifies common sense objections to finance. So, you know, many people object to what people think of as the profoundly asymmetric relationships between creditors and debtors, which is, you know, encapsulated in the, the fact that you pay interest to borrow money that you don't have for a project you need the money for. 
And and many people, I think, are profoundly discomforted by thinking about things like derivatives contracts, for instance, which are you know money, vast amounts of money changing hands on the basis of bets about counterfactuals and hypotheticals. And Islamic law takes those two sort of instincts, if you like, those intuitions seriously and says, you know, this is these are things we should avoid. And so it's a system of finance, quite large-scale finance. It, you know, the Islamic banking assets worldwide run to about $2 trillion plus. So depending on how you count it, that's somewhere between 3 and 6% of global banking assets, depending on how you value those, which are structured around credit relationships that don't involve interest so the, the 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 obvious way of doing this is simply various types of share participation where rather than making a loan a bank takes a stake and then the person receiving the money from the bank has the option of buying the bank out progressively like it's essentially an equity stake type model so these are somewhat contorted constructions but the the fact of the fact that this contains lever, limits leverage means that this is a in some senses, like the fantasy banking system of the most radical critics of Western finance who would indeed try and move away from loan-based finance and would prefer it to take the form of equity stakes and are profoundly skeptical about different types of derivative contract. And Qatar has indeed emerged as a, as a major center. Got it. Finally, Adam, how might climate change affect Qatar? I mean, is it even going to be possible to live there in a world that's several degrees hotter? Does it have an economic model in a world where gas has been replaced by renewable energy in much of the world? I mean, you raise a really crucial issue, I think, here. I mean, on the one hand, um, you know, the Middle East may be viewed quite reasonably as the premier producer of fossil fuels, but it's also absolutely the crosshairs of climate change itself because the entire region is already... Um, extraordinarily difficult to inhabit because of the extreme heat. And this isn't just the Western perception. Locals feel it very acutely as well, and their elite leaves the region as far as they possibly can during the, the, the worst seasons. And it isn't simply heat, it's humidity as well, which is a real killer in the region at the wrong time of year. And humidity is the thing which our bodies find it hardest to deal with because we can't, you know, in dry heat, you can sweat away the heat. In humidity, you can't. So that's the real risk. Uh, and they know that they're at risk from it. And of course, the simple answer is that if you're as rich as Qatar or the Gulf states or Saudi Arabia, then you know you can make the world inhabitable by means of highly sophisticated forms of cooling system, which we have seen on display during the World Cup. The, the mortality risk in the Gulf is more in much poorer Middle Eastern states like Iraq, for instance, which does not have the resources to properly cool tens of millions of people um, in extreme heat situations. And then as we move across the uh, Indian Ocean to Pakistan and, and northern India, which is where it's going to get very, very difficult indeed. Um, but for cooling, what you need is energy. And of course, Qatar, like the other Gulf states, has energy in vast abundance. I mean, take your pick, oil gas, um, solar, wind, they can do all four. Uh, they're also interested in building nuclear capacity. They are going to be energy superpowers. They fancy themselves as major hubs also for hydrogen production, because the crucial thing you need for hydrogen is abundant energy. Um, and the way they understand their situation is that there is no future without them, because there is no plausible energy transition scenario over the next half century, shall we say, the, you know, the only kind of timeframes within which it's reasonable to plan, in which there is not still some substantial consumption of oil and gas around the world for hard to abate sectors and for economies which are still developing. And the offset will be various types of carbon capture. 
And the countries that will supply that oil and gas in these conventional scenarios of energy transition are the lowest cost producers. And the lowest cost producer for oil is Saudi Arabia, and the lowest cost producer for gas is Qatar. And so they don't, their vision of energy transition doesn't involve one in which they stop making oil and gas um, because there will be a residual need and, and they will be the lowest cost producers. Um, the future is bleak, on the other hand, for the high cost producers of oil and gas, right? So that's how they see a future developing. They see themselves as, as energy hubs with huge climatic issues, which they have to adjust to through adaptation. But in terms of the production of energy, they see themselves as key producers uh, for the foreseeable future. Got it. We will keep an eye on it. We do need to take a break here. And we will be back in a second to talk about artificial intelligence. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. Our next data point is four. That's a reference to the fourth generation of the Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, or GPT, that was just released by the company OpenAI. It's being hailed as a revolutionary advance in artificial intelligence. The system is designed to provide information and answer questions through a conversational interface. Basically, you can just kind of type in a question and it'll provide an answer. 
any kinds of questions, in fact. A new online chatbot is making waves on social media for both its precise and also painfully <laughs> honest answers. For years, people have been saying robots might be able to pack boxes, but they will never be able to write a poem like human beings. Well, it turns out your shitty poetry has some competition. The artificial intelligence is trained on this huge sample of text taken from the internet. It was designed for ease of use, and it turns out to work out that way, and it yeah, responds in all sorts of formats, whether you want informal chat or a dialogue, or you can even ask it to write you an essay or a play, and it will perform that in any style you request. So this has raised new questions about artificial intelligence and its relationship to labor market. Suddenly, it seems like the technology might not just be coming for manufacturing jobs or jobs like truck driving that have been discussed in the past, but professional work, uh, maybe even the kinds of journalism that we do at FP, or I don't know, the kinds of scholarship maybe even produced at places like Columbia. So Adam, I wanted to ask about your perspective as a professor, first off, specifically the part of the job that consists in teaching. Uh, a lot of people are talking about how this uh, artificial intelligence can produce essays based on prompts that a professor or teacher might provide, and that professors may not be able to tell the difference. So you tell us, how do you go about grading any particular student's paper or exam? I mean, do you think you'd be able to spot an AI-generated text? And do you think it matters whether whether you could or not? I mean, I'm really not sure, to be honest, whether I would be able to. I mean, the rate at which this is developing, um, it's going to be quite difficult to answer that question with confidence because it does imply having a strong model of you know, your own process in, in grading. And I think anyone who honestly looks at that process and their procedures for doing it will admit that uh, you know, it's a fuzzy business at best, and my ability to, you know, identify um, a student one way or the other would be quite. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel, I feel not altogether confident about that. I mean, the sad thing may be that the easiest way to spot the fact that an essay was done by AI will be that it's too clean and too grammatical and doesn't contain, <laughs> you know, typos and so on. And so, it, I think it would become truly foolproof as a mode of cheating if if they could train the AI to be less perfect. I mean, certainly when you're, you know, we already have an issue with plagiarism or, you know, just basically copy and paste essays where people take chunks of text from the internet. And, you know, and anyone who does research knows that there's this risk of simply copy and pasting material that you find online into your own prose and then forgetting where you got it from. And the easiest way certainly to spot that is when a student's prose suddenly smooths out and it sounds as though you're reading like an adult professional writer and you realize that's clearly not the voice of the person that you taught or wrote the rest of the essay. I mean, more seriously, I think, you know, this question of whether it should matter. I mean, what is it we're, what is it, what is it we, we're testing for? And I think, you know, if chess is kind of an interesting example, because it's one of the zones of human endeavor where AI has made most progress. And it's literally the case now that it's not so much, well, the, the best chess players are benchmarked against their ability to, through human cognition, produce the same sequence of moves that the very best AI programs would make. So in a sense, you know, the, the situation for our poor students might very well be that in due course, AI defines what it means to write a good essay, you know, at least at some basic technical level. And, and we ask them to match that. Where I think AI really has huge upsides, and you see it already with students, is in fact more on the teaching side, less the examining side. Because, you know, anyone who's done routine teaching knows that in fact the problems that students have are predictable. And that's what AI does. 
sophisticated AI done is it's predicting engines and you give them a problem, you know, about say the French Revolution or whatever in history, and you get the students to answer a bunch of questions and a good AI program could probably figure out what they do and they don't understand and where they need to be helped. It could make suggestions as to, are you sure you understand, you know, Robespierre and what Robespierre was really about? Or do you really, you know, from what you've just told me, I get a sense that you don't really quite understand the nature of the tax revolt in 1789. Do you think we ought to have a tutorial about that? And so let's go over that material again. Yeah, I mean, as you're pointing out, artificial intelligence works on the basis of noticing patterns or learning patterns and then applying them. And yeah, I guess that got me wondering how much of human behavior is following the sorts of patterns that algorithms could emulate. I mean, you know, we're used to thinking of rote work as as pattern-based, but does the same go for much of what we would think of as thought-based work? I mean, is genuine human thought less common than we think in many jobs? We end up here in some real struggle, don't we, over defining what we think the genuine human is. And, you know, we end up defining routine and imitation as not really being human, um, which Mm. I think probably takes us in the wrong direction. Because on the contrary, it seems like imitative behavior is, in fact, quite fundamental to who we are. And it's clearly true that, as it were, the logic of systematization and disciplining and routinization that you might think of as being applied to the mechanical actions, um, you know, disciplining just literally bodily behavior on a factory production line or, or you know, in military drill or or sp- in sport, for instance, where you're training people to, to, you know, kick a ball in a certain way or whatever, that that we think of that as qualitatively distinctive and different from mental activity. And that that doesn't that doesn't make sense, right? Because in fact, when you were teaching people to think hard, you're actually also teaching a kind of you're actually also teaching a kind of discipline. I mean, one way one way I was thinking about this was you, know, you take something like classical music performance, um, where there is a score. You know, there's the music that was written by Mozart or Beethoven or whatever, and you can absolutely mechanically using literally physics describe the physical quality of a performance and its conformity to the music as written. And you must do that in a sense, right? And deviation from that is is basically you failing to perform the music. If you play a note too long or too slow, you know, or too short or the sequence of, of, of notes does not flow as smoothly as it should, then you are not playing the music correctly. And then, but on top of that, there is also this dimension of interpretation, which has a different feel to it. It's a different quality of appropriation, a different quality of performance that distinguishes something that's technically correct from something that's artistically convincing or novel or just simply beautiful. And you could, of course, if you think hard about that, that too is trained. I mean, that's what that's what musical tuition, that's why ensembles rehearse over and over again, that's why they discuss. But I think maybe the difference is that it is, you know, inspired by sensibilities that are very hard to formalize, then discursively embedded in conversations amongst people that say, yes, we're going to do it this way. And in retrospect, we might be able to codify it such that you know, the most brilliant performance of a one of Beethoven's late string quartets or whatever would become analytically open to us. And we could then begin to train an AI program 
to produce a particular type of performance, not just to be technically correct, but to actually even grasp some of the musicality that enters in. You, know, you could train AI, presumably, to be genuinely funky. Like that's, you know, it's challenging to do because it's really difficult to actually capture in a score what makes up the incredibly subtle movements of a, you know, an amazing bassist or whatever. You know, if we put our minds to it, we could probably formalize even that, but it may just not be worth it. Well, to get back to some of the labor issues here, I mean, if this replacement of labor by machines were to arrive, would it be a social utopia or a dystopia? Because it seems that economists have been sort of speculating on this moment for a long time, but they don't necessarily agree on what it would mean. On, on one hand, from what I know, Karl Marx predicted, say, that there would be a, a crisis with emiserated proletariat that would be unable to find gainful employment anymore. But on the other hand, there are economists like Keynes who kind of painted a vision of a productive society that just worked less and had more time for leisure. So do one of these scenarios strike you as more plausible than the other? You know, the straightforward answer to that is to say it's all about politics. It's all about power, right? That's the fundamental issue here. The technology itself has potential for good and for bad. And the question really is how it's deployed. And, you know, the likelihood of it having utopian consequences all by itself, I think that's the naivety, right? If you take a society riven by conflict and riven by huge inequality and inject technology into it, the technology by itself is not going to save you from the sort of society that you're in. Um, it could ameliorate around the edges, it could make the situation even worse, but it isn't by itself going to produce a utopian radical transformation. It could open the door to struggles which could make the world better. It could empower groups of people, for instance, that previously were not empowered and give them more leverage than they previously had. You know, one of the, you know, the fantasies of tech enthusiasts, at least back to the 1970s, has been that the, the masters of the code, the masters of the software universe will at some point rise up as the, the new you know, progressive elite that will put the world to rights. That seems naive, but is it true that our dependence on software does give power to the coders? And that's clearly true. And we may be you know, about to see a demonstration of this in a situation like Twitter, where you have an empowered oligarch taking over a company, mistreating the workforce. And if enough of them quit, then the platform may just simply collapse. And the people who use the technology may simply walk away from it. Um, so technology, by producing change, may open up the possibility for struggles of various types that will empower certain groups at the same time as they disempower others. Having said that, Again, looking out at South Korea as I am here, I mean, it's hard to deny the transformative and to a degree liberatory impact of technology per se, right? As much as I want to be a socio and economic relativist and say it's really all down to social structure, the fact of the matter is, is that we're recording this podcast with me here, you in Berlin. Our producer Laura in Israel, <laughs> and it's going perfectly smoothly. And I'm looking out on a, you know, a brilliantly lit, happy soul night in a country which, 60 years ago, was desperately poor. I mean, truly desperately poor. And part of what 
enabled this country to grow is not simply, you know, the power of the Korean elite and the coercive mobilization of the Korean military in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, but also the human capacities unlocked in the Korean population by an investment in education and their enthusiastic embrace of you know, everything from original, you know, 1970s and 80s electronics to the current digital age. And there is a degree, you know, there is a story of peasants into netizens in that kind of history, which can't, which doesn't just reduce to, to power and economics. So tempered optimism, but no utopianism. Yeah, I guess, I guess finally, I wanted to ask a bit more about this reciprocal effect that AI could have on the kind of work that we do. I mean, I'm thinking here of the AI-powered image generators that are out there as well, that recently have been released that are also remarkable in their own way. You know, when the production of artistic images is automized, I just imagine that must have some influence on the production of art itself, that artists will incorporate that knowledge of that automization into their own continued production that, I don't know, the terms of aesthetics will shift as a result as well. And maybe, I don't know, could the same be true of text and, and writing? Although I guess I'm not sure what exactly that would mean. Maybe the, yeah, the aesthetics of writing would change when so much is automized. But what do you think, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I have a brilliant journalist friend who's really confronted me with this question. And her line is always, right, you know, valuable writing now is writing that you don't think could plausibly have been generated by AI. And the same criterion applies in an art museum. Hmm. You know, the, the art that's worth going to a museum to see is the stuff that you can't really plausibly imagine having been produced by AI. That, I think, is the kind of confrontational position, right? That wants to define art almost in the manner of a kind of, I don't say this as a criticism, but like to locate that. I think that idea is a kind of romantic conception of, sub, of, of creativity. Um, or at least it goes back to that era where you see people like Immanuel Kant as well, struggling with what distinguishes judgment and aesthetic judgment from the mechanical operation in some sense of logic, right? A sort of naturalistic determinisms of various types, which is essentially what the AI spits out. I think you could also imagine a more creative interaction. I mean, again, to come back to chess, because it's one of the realms in the world which have been completely transformed by AI, no serious chess player any longer trains without playing the machine, right? It's through playing the machine that you really are able to explore all the possibilities that are open to you at any given moment. And then performance in the game is judged by your conformity to you know, a path that would have been tracked by that machine. And the machine itself, once upon a time, would have been thought of as the product of the accumulated genius of, you know, um, global chess playing. Now we have to confront the fact that, yes, many of the latest programs have learnt to play chess and then, you know, with astonishing speed, taught themselves to be champion-level Go players um, by playing themselves. So at that point, I think the position is one of kind of humility almost. And it's tempting to say that the last reserve really of human creation in that sense will be a kind of in like i started by joking about student essays that you know we can tell they're not ai generated because they're full of typos well it, it may be in a sense that 
and this, I think, is a rather defensive description of how we could end up, but that the zone of human creativity is the zone of craft, of things which are clearly handmade. They, you, you can tell they're handmade by their imperfections, right? And, and it'll be in the slightly DIY quality of a certain sort of culture that we will recognize that it doesn't belong. It's not the result of a machine production process. I will say here that there are, in doing my research for this, I came across podcasts that are entirely generated by artificial intelligence. It's both written and performed and recorded entirely autonomously. And they were not terribly pleasurable to listen to, but maybe that'll be on its way. Maybe we'll be replaced. But then they're going to go to a different area. So Joe Weisenthal did an experiment you know, from Bloomberg, and he did an experiment where he got a chatbot to give him like a standard... <laughs> macroeconomics assessment of the world right now and it's 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 horrifyingly oh, good boy. i mean it really is like a parodic kind of rendition of what <laughs> of what your average talking head and of course it's a little bit too close to the bone for me right now <laughs> it's not all that comfortable to hear because it's, it's, like, it's, it's uh it's it's like you know it's three updates away from being able to just render you completely redundant and it does raise this issue of what would be your unique selling point? What would be the what would be the the twist that you could add? Well, we do need to leave it there for now. Uh, I will assure our audience we are we are flesh and blood, not robots yet. <laughs> Ones and twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tooze, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us, that's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. 
The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.